This is the Horse Radio Network. Hello, and welcome to our second episode of the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And we have a great episode for you today. On this episode, we have farrier Pat Riley with us to discuss some really cool research that he's been doing, as well as to get his input and thoughts on some really uh, current topics, such as barefoot shoeing, as well as using some wearable devices. Before we get to our interview with Pat, uh, we have a few quick updates about the Equine High Performance Sports Group. Um, That's the group that Tim and I are a part of that bring you this very podcast. And we just wanted to let you guys know that we have um, some new websites up and running for you to check out all the stuff that we're doing. So um, if you head to ehpsg.com, you can see all of the many projects that we have going on, all sort of working to, um, you know, do, do interesting projects to support, you know, the best care and management of our equine athletes, including again, this podcast. And then if you head to sporthorsepodcast.com, you'll find not just information about our episodes, but also our really interesting video library. Um, There's some really great lectures there from amazing experts, as well as discussions with really top um, equestrians uh, about how to sort of break down um, the information that the experts provide and and actually apply it to to our horses. So um, definitely go check those out. That's www.ehpsg.com and sporthorsepodcast.com. And so today we have Pat Riley with us. So Pat is just an incredible individual, really, really bright, for sure. One of the the thought leaders in the field of uh, shoeing and inferior work. Pat has been shoeing horses since graduating from the Midwest Farrier School in 1990, where he specialized in shoeing sport horses. And in 2006, Pat joined the University of Pennsylvania, where he serves the Chief of Farrier Services and the Director of the Applied Polymer Research Laboratory. He recently graduated from the Royal Veterinary College with a graduate diploma in equine locomotor research. I've known Pat for a while now, and we've had some absolutely amazing conversations about how horses' feet should be managed. Uh, sort of what the future of of that uh, industry looks like. And so we thought he'd be the perfect guest to bring on to today's show to chat about some of the cutting edge topics in hoof care and some of the, the work he's been uh, doing. And welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. Thank you, Tim. Nicole, thank you for having me. So to begin, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your role at the University of Pennsylvania? Uh, we know that you're incredibly busy there. So what does a typical day look like? <laughs> um. I guess the typical day is there is no real typical, right? It's a, you know, when you work in a, in a tertiary emergency practice, it's, you know, the, the unknown is the one thing you can count on is that everything's going to change. We have days where we'll have, you know, two, three, four unannounced laminitis cases that walk in the door. Um, we usually start with teaching rounds in the morning. And then when we get to cases, I have, I have cases that I would call routine farriery, horses that I'm maintaining. But most of the work that I'm doing is, is you know, working with veterinarians in lameness workups and foot surgeries. And, and I almost always have a student by my side of that student. Uh, you know, we talk about the role. And that's one of my jobs is, is we don't teach veterinarians how to shoe horses, but we teach them about the theories behind why and how we shoe horses the way we do and what we think about the what we've done in the past. So I try and give them a, a big, long perspective on not just how I shoe horses, but how 
uh, farriery is is conducted and how we approach it. I think what makes your position really unique is that you're always working with veterinarians and an entire support team. So it's you're constantly with them. And can you speak a little bit about what that relationship is like and and some of the benefits of having that really good communication and a good team of veterinarians around you? Oh, well, I think, I mean, then I think, you know, boy, before we even begin to fix anything in a lame horse, I think it's essential that we know what the source of the problem is. What are we trying to fix? And I think that's kind of the, if I had to break down the, the job descriptions, and of course, there's a lot of overlap in this, but I think in general, the veterinarian's role is to diagnose the cause of pain or the source of the problem. And then the farrier's job, in this case, me, is to try and come up with some sort of mechanical way of addressing whatever pathologies they diagnose. So if they determine that the horse is lame because it has strain on or a lesion in the deep digital flexor tendon, my job is to look at the foot figure out what the horse does for a living, the surfaces it works on, and then try and devise a, uh, a shoeing mechanical remedy that to help protect that structure. Right. Uh, and then I, you know, ideally, and ultimately if this works well, is to work with the farrier at home and see if we can communicate what we did and why, and how we, you know, why we made the decisions that we make to see if we can help to maintain that horse and, and see if we can keep it comfortable for a longer period of time and, and help, the team at home relay the information of what we found to the people who are referring the cases in. Tim and I are really curious to get uh, your take a little bit on the barefoot versus shod debate. Um, you know, your, your talk about the, the inter- interdisciplinary nature of, of the way that you work, um, I think is, is really important in this conversation um, with sport horses that, you know, you're not just going to pull your horse's shoes and, and start jumping them, for example, just because you you think it, it looks cool or it works for someone else, that it's a conversation that you probably have with your trainer, your vet, your farrier, et cetera. But, um, you know, for all of our show jumping fans out there, we all kind of saw the Swedish uh, show jumping team in Tokyo have such success with, you know, two of their horses jumping uh shoeless. And that means that a lot of people are sort of jumping on that bandwagon. Um, So could you share with us um, some of the potential benefits and challenges um, with going this direction and and why um, this would be something that you would consider in the case of a sport horse? You know, maybe the best way to introduce that from my perspective, uh, my wife is a, an upper level dressage judge and trainer. She's had three horses now that, that we've brought up that she's brought up through the lower level stuff and into upper level FEI types of, of training and performance. And the, the interesting thing for me is, you know, the first horse that we bred ourselves never wore a shoe, competed up through pre-St. George, never wore a shoe and the horse never had a lame day in its life. Uh, the next horse, we ended up with front nail on shoes and that horse competed in and actually won the, the U S uh, four-year-old championships, uh, dressage championships. And then our current horse is competing at Grand Prix is in blue on shoes on the front, nail on shoes on the back, which I'm not doing this intentionally. I feel like I'm trying to combine every, you know, potential or every, you know, blue on shoes, barefoot, nail on shoes. But for me personally, I think it's all about what works for this horse. And that's really tough to know in advance exactly what that is. I think for the farrier, the way we tend to make our decisions in the farrier world, we have not had much evidence-based medicine. We have not had much science behind making some of these choices. So we're really left with just relying on 
anecdotes like the one I just gave you about my horses. I think everything is possible in the right circumstances. And I think horses can compete well with any number of, of orthotics or lack of orthotics, different ways of managing their feet. It depends entirely on the, uh, the circumstances in each individual horse. Now, you know, working in a place like New Bolton Center, I, I hate to have to rely on anecdotes. I like to be able to go back and say, hey, here's the evidence to support, you know, shoes versus barefoot. This is why we made our choices. You know, and the problem with this particular discussion is that it's not new. It's not like I know that, you know, Tokyo and the, the Swedish team brought that to light. But this is a topic that we've been arguing about, basically debating. And, you know, I can pull up articles from the early 1800s where, you know, Russell was arguing about, you know, how shoes would have the potential to cripple horses. And yet we keep shoeing horses. There are also a lot of horses that are shod and, and never have a lame day in their life either. So trying to understand what works for one given horse or for each individual horse for that job, it's really challenging. I think the potential is there for us to get a lot more information and a lot more science behind it. But we still have so far to go before we are able to sum up the final end picture. In other words, this is the best shoe to put on, or this is the best shoe not to put on or barefoot's best. We're still at a point, I think with horses where we're trying to understand very subtle changes and understand the, the way that's going to affect the way the horse is moving. Uh, it's, it's a really fascinating conversation, but I think at this point, you know, it's, it's almost going to be a case by case basis. And I don't think anybody's going to be able to tell you that every horse can go barefoot or that, no horses can perform at that level barefoot. Obviously they did. And that's, that's a pretty cool story. Uh, I do think it's kind of interesting to talk about, you know, that particular case, because those, the horses from what I've read and what I've understand, they're not entirely barefoot, right? So there are times that the farrier that's managing their feet would use urethane shoes, just kind of a, a urethane uh, injection mold urethane that they'll paint on the bottom of the foot to make an orthotic, or if they take them out and they're hacking, they'll, They'll work in uh, hoof boots, you know, different things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think the environment and the that these horses are living on, our surfaces are so amazing right now. I mean, shoot, I could take my shoes off and go running through, you know, some of the uh, arenas that we have, and I wouldn't feel a lame step. They're so comforting, so cushioning and easy on the feet um, that I think that definitely helps and the potential for these horses to do well. But they're Tim and I have gone on this for a lot. I mean, there are really cool studies about human <laughs> footwear, you know, and how human athletes, when they're barefoot, use 2% less oxygen than their shod counterparts than, than oh, the wow. runners they're wearing. We don't know why, right? So those are some good examples, I think, of, you know, things that may be benefits. There may be beneficial aspects to not having shoes on, but it's also still in the, to my knowledge, those are the first two horses that have performed at the Olympic level without shoes on and come home with medals. So, uh, you know, there's still a lot of head scratching and I'm not quite sure how should we take that information and relate it to the next client that walks in the door, you know, questions of that, we just don't know. And I think that's the only real 
responsible answer that I could give a client. <laughs> so could I ask you then for the, the example of the one horse that you said yeah. that, um, you know, never wore shoes and, and worked, you know, up to a high level of dressage. Yeah. Yes. What was the rationality for, for that particular horse to keep it barefoot? That's well, an interesting one. Um, so he was a horse that we fold out ourselves and I took care of his feet from a very young age and he had he had a little bit of a mismatched feet. He had a little bit of mm-hmm. upright foot. I don't want to get into his bloodlines because I don't want to, you know, make anybody <laughs> want to. <laughs> but, you know, we decided to start him out barefoot because it was easier just to, you know, trim a little heel off one side and a little toe off the other side on a weekly basis. I was there. I saw him every day. It was just really easy to address it in the short term. You know, and I think looking back at that, when we broke him under saddle, you know, I remember my wife saying, hey, well, we're going to break him. So let's, you know, should we put shoes on him? I'm like, well, let's start riding him first. We'll worry about shoes when that becomes necessary. And that turned into almost a funny conversation that we had every year. Like, you know, <laughs> okay, he's going third level. You want to put shoes on? No, he's going fine. You know, okay, then we'll put it off. And we just really never got around to it. And his feet matured very well. He ended up being a very, you know, very sound horse and one that, uh, you know, May have had a couple of days where he was a little bit sensitive, you know, going over the rocks outside of the arena. But as soon as he got in the arena, he was a rock star and everything was great. So I wasn't trying to fix anything. And okay. it, it might sound like a funny thing from a farrier who puts sensors on all these horses and glue on <laughs> shoes and fancy shoes on everything. But I'm really a bit of a minimalist. If I'm not, I have to know what I'm trying to uh, accomplish as a farrier relative to the horse's soundness and the horse's performance. Does he need more traction? Does he need more support? How are these things, you know, I'm not going to put them on just because I want to see, you know, how the horse is doing and then decide what, what the horse needs in order to improve his performance and try different things. And it is a bit of trial and error with all of these cases. Does that answer it well enough for you, Nicole? Was I- yeah, yeah. And and I think one of the really important points that I, I've heard you kind of allude to twice is that, um, you know, in these cases where the horses did really well barefoot, they had a fair that was sort of regularly um, evaluating them and and making making adjustments as needed. Yeah, and, and different ways of, you know, I mean, they were protecting the foot from what I understand in mm-hmm. temporary ways, you know, and things right. that weren't necessarily, you know, on their 24 hours a day, seven days a week for six weeks at a time or four weeks at a time, but it was something they could put on and adapt it as needed. Right. And uh, I was, I was kind of laughing. I was was bringing up to somebody the other day, like there was one event that I can think of, of a human marathon runner who won a gold medal in the Mexico city Olympics. Um, And I kind of wonder what that would have done in today's world. Would that have started a whole, you know, uh, movement of human barefoot runners, you know, running at that, at that level. I mean, that does happen. We do have that kind of that same, uh, there is a group of, of people that are running barefoot in, as human runners. Right. Um, but I wonder if somebody won a gold medal, if that would have made it, you know, would we see a lot more of that at that point? Uh, and we, you know, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously that same runner, ended up winning the gold medal again four years later in the Tokyo, in the, uh, actually, yeah, it was in the Tokyo Olympics, but this time he was choosing to wear shoes. Uh, and I think that's an interesting choice there. I mean, you know, I, I love the parallels with humans because they can talk to us. So it gives you a little bit of insight into what they feel. So, yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that about the barefoot runners, Pat, because I was just thinking back when I was going through a uh, university, we had a pretty good stable of 
uh, really good distance runners for Canada. Some of them went on to tote, went on to represent Canada in the Olympics. And uh, they went through a bit of a phase with barefoot running as well. Until one day I bumped into one of the guys outside of the uh, athletic center and he just stepped on some glass on yeah. the, uh, the sidewalk. And that was kind of the end of his barefoot. So I think it's even with the best intentions, sometimes the environment just doesn't allow you to, to go that route. So you, yep. you have to adapt. Um, but I think that uh, what, one of the reasons I guess we originally connected Pat was uh, we had some overlap or both had some interest in wearables. So I think now's maybe a good transition to ask you a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing. Uh, Nicole and I were geeking out a little bit on your YouTube channel yesterday. And uh, for our listeners, we'll put a link to Pat's channel, YouTube channel in the, the show notes. And you have some really, really cool stuff going on, some really cool work that you've done. And do you mind sharing a little bit with our listeners, maybe about the issue force uh, measurements to start? Yeah, so this, well, I guess I should back. I, I've been working at New Bolton Center now for about 15 years. And, and for about 10 years before that, I was living and working up in, in New England. I lived in New Hampshire and was doing some work at some vet cl- clinics there. And I uh, was also doing some work at the, uh, the Tufts School of Veterinary Medicine. And I remember watching, a, it was like a Dr. Scholl's commercial. There was a, you know, one of these kiosks where you stand on, on this sensor and it recommends orthotics for you. And I looked into the company, and the company was based in Massachusetts, and they, they did have some animal force sensors that, that they've used in the past. So I ended up working with this company, TechScan, and seeing if we could develop um, some protocols for applying these sensors. And the, the real nice part about using those particular types of sensors and what really drew me to them is that the sensors are going in between the shoe and the foot. So, you know, maybe for the last 30, 40 years, we've been using force plates that are built into the floor, but you're limited in terms of the information that you can get from that, right? I want to know what the shoe does. And in order to measure that, I have to measure on the hoof side of the shoe rather than on the ground surface of the shoe, because we're expecting these shoes to change the force. Um, And the other advantage is that we can take the system and we can put it on horses and then work them, evaluate them in the same footings that we would expect them to perform in, right? So I can take them out on the grass, I can take them out on, a, on hard surfaces, or I can take them in an arena. And then we're also including into the conversation the effects of the footings and the substrate that they're working on, which gives you a whole better picture, more clear picture about what's actually happening. You know, shoes do different things. They impact or influence the foot differently on different footings. And these are all the things that, you know, this is why we've been arguing about all this stuff for centuries. And this is also, it's probably a good time to bring out that, you know, I mean, we've been shoeing horses. I remember reading an article that uh, was published in England and they were asking why haven't horseshoes changed in the last, you know, couple hundred years? Why haven't horseshoes, why don't we have high-tech horseshoes? Uh, you know, things really haven't changed since the 19th century. Uh, and for me, I, I obviously am biased. I'm working around lame horses all the time. So I'm looking at that issue from the perspective of saying, how can I quantify what I'm doing, justify what I'm doing to the vets and farriers and owners at home instead of just giving them another opinion? And bluntly, whether it's barefoot or shod, you said we've been arguing about these things for centuries. So I doubt, uh, well, I, I know 100% that I'm not the one who's smart enough that without observing this with new technologies, 
I'm unlikely to come up with, you know, the solution for something that we've debated for centuries. You know, I don't think anybody really is. I think we have to look at those things differently. So that was really where it started. You know, what does a bar shoe do? What does a, you know, a suspensory shoe do? How do these, how do pads change concussion or change force delivered to the foot? We, and, and probably in the last, you know, 20 years now, we've published maybe a, a half dozen different papers describing the influence of shoes through that. Uh, but this is, you know, as part of a bigger conversation, like the force measuring stuff is really cool because we can see where the horse lands and where they load and how they unroll or break over in their foot, uh, how much of the force is transmitted to the hoof wall and to the sole. And a lot of that, just being able to quantify it, I think, you know, means that we're having a whole level, a different level of conversation than if we're guessing about how those things occur. And not everything that I ended up finding or recording were things that I anticipated. I actually had to go back and change my understanding how I thought of things based on the data that, that we were collecting. Um, and I think that's a great thing. I hope that that's something that, you know, we can be open-minded in, and when, you know, evidence-based data is put in front of us that we can think about that information in a bit of a different way. Um, how much traction is enough? How much is too much? These are all, you know, again, these are things we've argued about for hundreds of years without, you know, finding a real common ground. That's some farriers still argue about it. Farriers and farriers still argue about it. And then you put trainers and riders in there. And, you know, if we're all talking about our personal experiences, I don't think we're going to get very far. Uh, and that's kind of turned around then instead of just looking at, at that system. Now we're using whole body symmetry, gait analysis systems, sensors that are mounted on the foot to measure foot flight and how much slide there is on impact. Um, we're hitting a really, really cool time in, in horses where, um, you know, within the next 20 years, I, I expect all of this is going to go from being science fiction. None of this was possible to, you know, I saw an ad the other day for a, a clip-on sensor that a rider puts on the saddle. And if your horse's symmetry of movement changes by more than a couple of percentage points, it'll send an alert to the rider so that they can, you know, be aware of that. That's like, yeah, really, really cool stuff. And we have to learn how to use and incorporate that into farrier practices. But that's, you know, if things are going to change in the farrier industry, you know, if we are going to find that there are better ways of doing things than what we've been doing the last couple of hundred years, this is what's going to move us in that direction, at, at least in my opinion. It's so fascinating to hear that all the technology is is really here now that we need to, you know, collect the evidence to make more evidence-based decisions for farriers. And, you know, some farriers tend to be a little, you know, technology adverse. They have so much experience that they use to inform their decisions, but um, maybe are a little resistant um, to, to some of the news out there. So how do we go about, you know, as an industry starting to move forward and, and bring science into something that is so steeped in history and tradition and, um, you know, experience and, and, and as you, as you talked about, you know, a, a little bit of art plus science. The first thing is that, you know, farriers really have not been, there's some really, really fantastic farriers out there that are very intuitive, insightful, you know, they may not have a lot of science behind what they do, but what they do works for them. And, and sometimes I think the role of science 
is to go back and follow these people and figure out why what they're doing is working for them. So it's not just telling them what to do, it's kind of finding what's successful and then figuring out what parts of that are, are making it successful. Um, I actually gave a, a, you know, I said a lecture this weekend where we instrumented horses and then, you know, presented this, you know, the, the changes that were made by the, the farrier who shod the horse in, in this demonstration. You know, there are a couple of things in there. One is I started with using some of the diagrams that, that are in almost every farrier textbook and they're wrong. I mean, you know, like with what we know today, some of the, the information, in fact, a lot of the information that is still taught in farriery is based on four or 500 year old perceptions of what's happening. And bluntly, I don't, I don't think that's good enough. You know, is that saying that close enough counts in horseshoes and hand grenades? I don't think close enough counts now when you talk about horseshoes. You know, I think I, why should we settle for learning and teaching information that's old and out of date when we have sensors that can quantify that exactly on a horse, you know? Um, and, I, and I think if you present it to farriers as a way of expanding how we think of things and, you know, if this is going to come from farriers instead of being told to farriers that you have to do this differently, then I'm, I'm finding some farriers have been really intrigued by this. Like I said, I, you know, I gave that lecture a couple of days and in the, in the last two days since we you know, finished it, I've had four or five invitations to go do the same thing around the, around the world. So I know there's an interest there for farriers. There is still a little bit of a skepticism about you know, the art and science of farriery. And that's one that, you know, there's an art and science to almost any medical practice. And uh, I tend to think of the art as being the science that we can't explain yet. Uh, but we, you know, uh, there will be a day. I mean, and it's, it's like I said, it's really, I can take my iPhone and Velcro that to a horse's sacrum and that becomes a gait analysis system. This information is becoming so inexpensive and so accessible that I, I think this is going to have to be the future. It's just going to be there one way or the other, whether, you know, I mean, slow motion photography changed our entire perception of how horses move. Uh, there's a guy named Edward Moybridge who was famously worked for Leland Stanford and later for the university of Pennsylvania, coming up with some of the first movies to, uh, answer a bet about whether a galloping horse had all four feet off the ground at the same time. That's at least the story. And one of the things that was really cool as a byproduct of Moybridge's work is that we were able to quantify exactly how horses move anatomically. And if you look back at artwork and how horses were depicted in artwork, going from cave drawings to Monet to, you know, impressionist artists, they were Horses were depicted running and moving in anatomically impossible ways. It looks silly to look back at that now. But that's an example I used in this lecture of saying, after Moybridge started introducing science and capturing real images about how horses are standing and moving, literally science changed or art. It changed how horses were depicted in artwork. And that's how I think of it is we, you know, I'm not expecting this to change what we do overnight. But I think subtly we have the potential to become more accurate, get closer and more accurate representations of what we do. And, I, and most farriers, every farrier I know, cares about their work. They want to do a good job working on this, and they're trying to be right. It's just knowing, yeah, you know, like where's the information that we can use and trust, and how do we learn to process all of that? And we don't, we don't know this stuff for humans, right? I mean, you know, 
Nike and Adidas are very different in terms of what they do on your horse's feet or on our feet, excuse me. And we may have a preference. Science hasn't answered whether one of those brands of shoes is better for you than another. There's always going to be some art in that. I just want to use science to kind of refine the arguments that we're now arguing about single issues and not, you know, barefoot versus shot. That That's going to take a whole lot of smaller pieces to get put together before we can tell you exactly which one is right. Um, so as long as I don't pretend to, I think a lot of farriers have been pretty receptive of taking bits of that information and incorporating it into how they think of things. Awesome. I, I think those are really, really great points, Pat. I think that, uh, you, and, and I know we've talked about this uh, before in, in our own conversations about how it really is the frontier right now, right? Like there are yeah. all of these technologies coming out I think that for sure you are at the forefront with what you have in your toolbox to look at this stuff and just, just so exciting to see where this will all go. And, and I guess like one other thing I'd just quickly like to get your opinion on. So I think a really important point as well is that the hoof is such a dynamic structure, right? And it's from the second that you, you do the trim and go forward, maybe it's on a, a four week cycle or a six week cycle there, the hoof is constantly changing. The environment's changing. Right. Um, like, do you have a little bit of a sense on if someone did have a, a farrier around them or someone around them who could take some of these measurements, is there a time when it's best to do that? Or, <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I think one of the frustrations that I've noticed as I'm starting to use sensors on horses is that we tend to evaluate them at probably the two worst times to evaluate them. One, at the end of the shoeing cycle, when we all know the shoes are obsolete, right? I mean, you know, we shoe horses on a six-week interval primarily so we can, you know, attach a shoe with nails and not put so many holes in the horse's foot that we compromise the integrity of the foot. So that's kind of where this whole concept of a six-week shoeing interval came from is really how can we manage that foot? And if horses barefoot or in glue-on shoes, those are no longer the driving factors. Then it becomes more out of habit about why we work on horses in the time frames that we do with the shoeing intervals that we do. But we all acknowledge at the end of the shoeing cycle, you know, it's obsolete. That's why we're redoing it. That's why. And, and that tends to be when we start to measure it. And then immediately after we, you know, trim and shoe the horse, you could probably, there have been a couple of papers suggesting that you need a few days for the shoes and the horse to adjust, to acclimate to those changes. So really, what we need are studies that are done maybe, you know, following how the mechanics change throughout the shoeing interval, right? We know that, uh, let's see, according to one study, you know, the force required for a horse's foot to break over on a front foot changed by 16% on a front foot between the first day a horse is shot and eight weeks later. But on the hind foot, the resulting change was only 1.9%. So, growth is not affecting the front and back ends at the same rate. And, you know, to me, someone's going to need to do a lot of work studies. We actually talked about this with uh, Tilo Fow, who's a doctor of engineering who invented the Equigate system, seeing if we could do a study where we actually follow horses and measure them once a week through the shoeing interval. So we had a better idea of how growth and time affect, you know, the horse's response to that. But this is still stuff we don't have enough information on. That's a great you know, it's a great question, Tim, and sorry, I don't have an answer for you yet, but that's the kind of stuff that I think is going to make us better in the future. That's, that's the, 
those are the next steps. Those are the next things that we need to be able to start answering with more, you know, clarity. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Pat. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like it could go on forever. <laughs> um, but uh, we do like to ask our guests at the end of each episode um, that if there was, you know, one or two things that um, you could communicate clearly to a horse and that they could understand, um, what would those things be? Oh, communicate to a horse or from a horse? To a horse, to a horse. Boy, I don't know. I would kill for their feedback for a couple of days. <laughs> you know, like that to me, like I have more questions for them, you know. I mean, I'm trying to make them comfortable and I want to know what that is, right? So, right. you know, that if I could communicate to a horse in there, you know, we, we were talking about the human shoes, you know, barefoot versus shod you know, questions earlier. Zola Budd was a South African uh, runner, middle distances. She was also from Great Britain. She kind of had dual citizenship. And she she competed both shod and barefoot at different points in her career. Now that she's, you know, when she was training in her 40s, late 40s, 50s, she chooses to wear shoes all the time because she feels like that gives her hamstrings more support. That's what I need to know. Like, that's the feedback I want from a horse. If they could talk, what would they tell us about, you know, yeah, I like this. This works. I mean, I could put on a pair of shoes in the shoe store and walk out of there. You know, nope, that wasn't for me. You know, I can, uh, that's, that would be the, uh, the conversation I'd want to have with the horse, not the other way around. I think they have more to tell me than vice versa. <laughs> Perfect. That's great, Pat. So again, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. We really, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, as Nicole said, I think that we'll probably have you back in the future just because there's, there's so much knowledge we want to uh, kind of take out of your brain and share with our audience. So uh, thank you again. I'm always happy to talk about how much I don't know, Tim and Nicole. So thank you. <laughs> the sponsor of today's episode is Barn Manager. Barn Manager provides easy-to-use management software that enables barns to improve their record-keeping, scheduling, communication, and business management. With offerings starting at $10 a month, Barn Manager offers solutions for any size stable. Barn Manager is designed for barn managers by barn managers. They communicate with their users on a regular basis to see how their platform can grow and improve. Thanks to customer feedback, Barn Manager is preparing to launch invoicing, payment processing, and revenue tracking tools as part of a new subscription offering called Barn Manager Pro. Find more information on their website and sign up for a personal live demo to learn how Barn Manager can meet your barn's needs. Barn Manager also has a special offer for our listeners. Sign up for a free trial of Barn Manager at www.barnmanager.com and enter code PODCAST10 for 10% off the first three months of your subscription. Go and check it out and we'll have more details in a link to our podcast. Well, Nicole, I think that was an absolutely great uh, second episode for us. I, I was really excited when Pat agreed to come on the show today. He has such a, an amazing vision for the future of, I, I think, the industry. I'm, I would put pretty good money on it that I don't know when it'll happen, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years down the road, but I think eventually all of our sport horses will be doing some sort of uh, assessment like he was describing, whether it's symmetry or uh, sort of flight characteristics or even looking at the forces under the hooves. So uh, just really great to hear past perspective on all of that. He's such a wealth of knowledge and I, I just love hearing him speak. You learn so much when, whenever he opens his mouth. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm so grateful that, um, you know, you guys knew each other and, and that you were able to get him on today. Cause I, I think as a horse owner, like shoeing and, and my horse's feet are one of the things that I know the least about. Um, I like to pretend that I know what I'm talking about, but, um, you know, you're ultimately, uh, really, really leaning on your farrier, um, and, and their experience and expertise. And it's refreshing to hear that there is, um, you know, some science coming through. And I, I really loved, um, what Pat said about, you know, the, the art of, of, um, you know, farrier work is, is really just the science that they haven't figured out yet. Um, I thought that was such an interesting way to think about it. And, um, it gives me a little hope that someday I'll actually understand it too, because it, it'll, it won't just be art. It'll be, um, a little bit more, uh, broken down into terms that I can comprehend. So uh, for our listeners today, if you want to learn more about what Pat's been working on, be sure to head over to our website, www.sporthorsepodcast.com. Uh, we will post a link to his YouTube channel. I encourage everyone to go in and to check it out. He has some really great videos, especially some of the uh, earlier videos on his channel there. And uh, I know we're going to be bugging Pat to, to come on the show more and maybe to contribute in some other ways. So just stay up to date and uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing more from Pat. Yeah. And definitely be sure to follow us, um, follow us and like us in whatever app you use to listen to this podcast, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Um, on those channels, we're actually the at sport horse series. Um, there you can find information about the podcast, but also about our video library. Um, and like Tim said, be sure to head to our website for more awesome educational content. Again, that is www.sporthorsepodcast.com. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. And you can go to the app store and search Horse Radio Network now to find that app and get it downloaded. Um, And we just want to thank again, our sponsor, Barn Manager. And here's to keeping your sport horses happy and healthy. 